You are listening to the Time Traveler's Almanac, a podcast from the History Department at Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Hello and welcome to our show. My name is Natalia da Silva Perez. And my name is Isabella Restrepo. And today we are very happy to have Dr. Vincent Baptiste. Vincent, welcome to our show. Thank you. We wanted to start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I'm a postdoc at the history department in Rotterdam. I uh, recently finished my PhD there as well. And before that, I actually have a background in, not in history, but in media studies. I studied media studies at the University of Amsterdam. I did a bachelor and research master there. And after that, I went on to work as a junior researcher in a digital humanities group at the University of Amsterdam. And through that experience in digital humanities, I sort of rolled into the field of urban history more. And that's how I took up the PhD position in Rotterdam in the history department within the broader project of pleasurescapes with different partners in other European universities. Well, it seems that you've been involved in a large amount of projects, but your most recent one is actually the European Herne-funded project Pleasurescapes for Cities to International Forces of Integration. Could you give us an overview of what this project entails? Yeah, certainly. So it was a, a European research project that ran from 2019 till 2022. It was a collaboration between four European universities, all located in different port cities. So next to Rotterdam, we had Barcelona, Hamburg and Gothenburg in our team. And a research project, Pleasurescapes, was set up from the assumption that port cities are uh, different kinds of cities but their cultural history has often been neglected compared to, for instance, their economic and industrial importance throughout history. And our project Pleasurescapes wanted to tackle this by looking at peculiar kinds of leisure spaces and entertainment histories of these poor cities throughout the 20th century, long 20th century in Europe, and to uncover that sort of neglected history and also to bring this to um, new audiences because sort of the public outreach part of the project was to collect different kinds of objects and and archival material to also put that into exhibition plan um, to be released in a museum exhibition in the near future and also write a theater play on the basis of stories and narratives we found in the archival material that we found in the, the different portions. The theater play was supervised or handled by the Barcelona team especially but all other researchers gave input for that as well. So you focused on the history of Rotterdam as a city of entertainment and pleasure right? Yes, exactly. And while you were researching that, it seems that you focused on the historical neighborhood called Zandstraatburg. Can you tell us a little bit more about this predecessor of Rotterdam's cultural entertainment history? Yes, so uh, I structured my PhD research on different um, neighborhoods within Rotterdam. And one of them indeed was uh, the Zandstraatbuurt, my first case study, also the oldest case study in the entire history of Rotterdam. This is a neighborhood that came especially to notorious prominence around the turn to the 20th century. The neighborhood already existed before then, of course, and there are sources that go back much further in time and already mention the Zandstraatbuurt as quite notorious, a rowdy neighborhood. In essence, the Zandstraatbuurt was... Uh, 
poor uh, district, a working class neighborhood, the city center of Rotterdam at the time, and really comprised of a lot of shabby, dilapidated houses with small grocery stores and also a lot of small little bars that catered to a lot of um, sailors that came and went in the port city of Rotterdam. And that neighborhood especially became more and more notorious towards the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century when the port of Rotterdam really expanded significantly and really grew big in proportions and when Rotterdam really was put on the map as the new leading port city in the Netherlands and later on also like in Northwestern Europe more generally. And so this Zandstadtbuurt is what you could describe as a pleasure scape in the sense that it was a neighborhood that sort of clustered together these kind of stereotypical pleasures you can associate with um, sailor culture. You can think of prostitution practices going on, uh, gambling, a lot of drinking of course. And at a certain point in time because of these uh, sailors coming in and out of the city, sailing along to another destination and taking the stories and their experiences with them. The Zandstadtbuurt became really well known to everyone in the city and also outside of the city of Rotterdam. And at that point, around the 1910s, it became also a problem for the municipality in Rotterdam, who really wanted to make Rotterdam a new modern and industrial city, really showing themselves to the outside world. And in that image, the shabby, notorious, nitty-gritty area didn't really fit anymore. And it then came to a point that the municipality decided to demolish the neighborhood in order to make way for a new city hall. And this is what actually happened with a couple of years of waiting for that transition to happen in the 1910s. And the city hall that replaces Anstradbuurt is still standing in Rotterdam uh, nowadays. When you discuss these neighborhoods and their stories, you make a rather interesting statement, saying that they were often filled with contradictions. Could you perhaps tell us a bit more about this? What I really liked about what I wanted to um, uncover in this case of the Zandstadtbuurt specifically is the ambivalences underlying these pleasures in the port city. So on the surface, the Zandstadtbuurt uh, shows itself as almost like a slum in the city, um, a place that you would not necessarily want to have lived in at the time. It was rather poor, it was dirty, there was also a lot of violence going on, as I could read in newspaper articles at the time. But at the same time, when the existence of the Zandstadtbuurt started to be questioned in order to make way for this new city hall, in Rotterdam, you also see more and more people becoming more nostalgic about the neighborhood, saying like, oh, this is quite a peculiar neighborhood, it shouldn't disappear. It was not only about sailors going there and having fun, but it was also about people who tried to take care of people who didn't necessarily have the easiest life. So there's more ambivalence going about this neighborhood, about people knowing that actually it's something we shouldn't be nostalgic about, but still we are. And you see these kind of contradicting tensions also in the influences that the Sunstrabit was composed of, and one of these in the was religion. In the Zandstadtbuurt there were a couple of religious associations active at the time, probably also because of the fact that they really thought that this neighborhood was a neighborhood that should be saved off the debauchery that happened there, saved off people who had fallen from grace and should be helped to find their path again in society. And in the city archive of Rotterdam, I discovered various booklets of these religious associations that were active at the time, really stereotyping this neighborhood as a swamp of immorality, of people who a kind of lost track and therefore should need a helping hand in that neighborhood. And this was something that was documented by a journalist, Amie Brusse, who first booklets were really about these religious associations and their activities there. So there was a lot of ambivalences, but these contradictions also were what made the neighborhood so complex and intricate at the end of the day. I was wondering if you have any anecdotes of real people that you could share with us so that we can try to paint a picture in our minds of how it was to live in Zandstraatbord or hang out there. 
That's a trick one because I didn't interview people for this because a lot of people who lived in that neighborhood passed away. So I didn't collect anecdotes myself, but a couple of interesting artistic projects that were set up at the time that I also researched the Zandstraat Beard is, for instance, from Rotterdam artist Cass La Riviere, who made a project called New Neapolis. And his grandparents, I think, if I'm correct, they lived in the Zandstraat Beard. And from there, he got this idea of this very folkloristic feel for the city center of Rotterdam. Took with him when setting up his new project when he tried to create bonds of kinship with other port cities in Europe, kind of similar to what we did when he did it in an artistic way. And then there was another artistic project of an artist who took portraits of her family members, maybe also, I think, grandparents who, I think, lived in the Zandstraat and connecting the patterns of the streets to generational patterns of uh, her family. But if you would like to find anecdotes, I can recommend you to check out archival newspapers on the Zandstraat because if you go to Delver and you search for the Zandstraat around the 1910s. What you find mostly is very short but quite colorful, juicy even anecdotes on all the small little accidents that happened in the neighborhood in the past. And these things um, are luckily still preserved in the archival news- newspaper collections. In the searches that you found on the newspapers, is there anything that comes to your mind that really struck you as interesting news? But I think there was something on a rat plague. Of course, the Zanzibar was often terrorized by a rat. So what I sometimes found interesting was the way that these accidents were uh, discussed in the newspaper in a way that showed as if people kind of by now were used to it. I think I remember reading on a small newspaper mentioned on the rat plague in the Zanzibar, which said something like, in the Zanzibar, guess what? It's happening again. There is another rat plague. So as if people don't even have to be surprised by it anymore. So it's especially like the tone of voice uh, was under these little messages and um, really struck me. Also, the Zanzibar really became well known to people. You didn't even have to go to yourself to kind of know how it was like. Something that I wanted to ask you actually is, you mentioned that the neighborhood you research are described as pleasurescapes. Could you perhaps tell us a bit more about this? Yes, this is of course one of the key conceptual underpinnings of our project. I didn't come up with the word itself, but I further conceptualized it and theorized it throughout my research. We found that a lot of people really connected with the pleasurescapes concept. And I think there's a lot of strength in the concept because it relates to plays that existed at a certain point in time, like the Zanzibar, but also something that goes beyond space. When the Zanzibar was demolished to make way for the city hall, you can say that as a pleasurescape, it still lived on in the memories, in the minds of people and in how the legacies of the Zanzibar influenced the other neighborhoods that came after it. In addition to that, I indeed distinguish pleasurescapes from leisurescapes because I theorize pleasurescapes with connotations to the topic of hedonism related to the ideas you have of people having fun in a port city and people coming in and out of a city in a very organic way. And leisure is, of course, more related to something more systematic, something more ingrained on an associational level. It's something people aspire to doing in their free time. This is, of course, related to sailors as well because when sailors go aboard of a ship and they and entertain themselves in the city that's actually also leisure because it's in their free time so to speak but for sailors that free time could last as long as they want maybe maybe they can choose themselves uh, when to jump on the next ship so in that sense there is some a different temporal dynamic with people coming and going and not necessarily knowing when they're uh, leaving again and uh, this is what i underpinned the pleasurescapes idea with that hedonistic sort of temporally uncertain nature that underlies both the traditional ideas that we have about port cities, but have a basis in the historical accounts that we find on port cities. 
You mentioned that Zandstraatburg used to be where today is the city hall of Rotterdam, that region close to the cool single, right? Yeah, exactly. So I wondered if you could paint as a mental picture of what we would see the, the geography of Zandstraatburg. The Zandstraatburg was actually very condensed. It was rather small. And I think there were about like 2,000 or a bit more people living there in a very small area. So it was very packed. To give you a geographical sketches, also to distinguish between day and nighttime in the Zandstraatburg. That's quite important because during the day, the Zandstraatburg was a working class neighborhood where you would see women on the street, for instance, doing laundry on the street. At the same time, you would see a lot of small shop owners selling groceries or cigars. Children running around in the cramped alleys in the there's a lot of name plates of bars here and there. At the same time, a lot of shops and bars also were sort of cover up places for prostitution. Then in the nighttime, this would be more coming to the fore. Working class activities would shift to the background and the district would give more weight to people going from one bar to the other. And also interesting is that uh, there's not only nice photographs remaining of the Zanzibar, but also a couple of nice painterly impressions of the Zanzibar, where you see a lot of colorful little lights, which do not necessarily brighten the neighborhood that much but they give some sort of like a festive allure to the Zandstraatburg while still keeping that messy uh, character of the neighborhood and this is also something that was quite interesting to read on in the writings of Brussel um, because the journalist at one point mentions that these colorful lights make way for let's say standardized lights with much more of a colder um, appeal putting the Zandstraatburg in a modern light which made the neighborhood lose a lot of its appeal just before it became demolished so that's kind of like the atmosphere you would find in the neighborhood. You mentioned that the downfall of Zenstrachburt was a classic case of slum clearance. Can you tell us a little bit more about this process? Yes, so in principle, you could say the Zanzibar was indeed something that happened in other cities as well. It modernized to a rapid extent. There's many more people coming into the city, so the population is growing much. The industrial activity is also growing extensively. And at the same time, the people in charge of governing the city see that their city is going towards become more profitable, to become more attractive, and to become more important, not only for the region, but also for the entire country that the city is embedded in. Port cities both have a function to stimulate national economy but at the same time also compete with international cities. So in that sense you would say okay the Zanzibar doesn't fit a modern um, modernizing industrial city anymore. It is cramped, it is dirty it is unhygienic, it is poor so it should be eradicated. And that is indeed the sense that municipal councils at the time had. And this is the, the severe side of the Zanzibar's uh, story because the entire neighborhood was demolished to make way for the city hall but there was no alternative housing being provided for the people living there and we're talking about 2000 people or something who at one point had to start looking for housing themselves. At that point in time, so 100 years ago, there is very little attention to where these people would have to go to then afterwards. And with the municipality taking ownership of the uh, neighborhood in order to simply build that one administrative building. Um, but you really see uh, the neglect and uh, sort of the disinterest in trying to provide for an alternative for the people living there in the first place. Some of the uh, establishments like some bars and restaurants, etc., were able to continue elsewhere in the city in Rotterdam but in terms of where most of the people ended up because there was no alternative provided can assume that they just spread out across the city and this is something I would be interested in further finding out um, but it is a symptomatic example of the kinds of modernizing often very radically modernizing initiatives that took hold of cities and especially poor cities at that point in time. 
In your work, while you discuss the downfall of this neighborhood, you discuss the role of MJ Bosset. Who was he and what was his connection to the neighborhood? Yeah, Emmy Brissa was a very interesting character. So he was a local journalist in Rotterdam who wrote a column for the newspaper NRC, which we still know today. That, that newspaper was quite targeted to upper class uh, Rotterdam. And Brissa was actually uh, in a tricky situation writing for the newspaper because he actually had uh, quite a bit of affinity for the more bohemian side of urban living. So he actually didn't really fit the readers that he wrote for. But at the same time, he tried to use this in-between position to try and find a bit more sympathy for the people that you would find in a neighborhood like Zanserburg for their more spontaneous way of living, as he would put it in one of his writings. So Brussel held sort of a tricky in-between position, bridging his more liberal, high-class readership with the more bohemian part of city society that he was more familiar with. And he was also friends with a lot of other eccentric and adventurous people in Rotterdam at the time. So he had friends in the artistic circles. He especially explored the neighborhood with painters in Rotterdam. So he would be operating in this environment where he would also be an outcast himself because he is a journalist writing for a higher class audience, but at the same time sort of trying to advocate to keep this part alive as well because he saw it as unique. And he became very conflicted with the fate of the Zanzibar as well. As I said, he couldn't stop that process either. And when you compare his writings over time, you see also his own opinion on the Zanzibar changing a bit. You see him contemplating on the fact that that neighborhood couldn't have been sustained as such for a longer period of time. Something needed to be done about it. Um, the fact that it has been eradicated entirely was indeed quite radical and was also quite uh, drastic in the eyes of Brussel. But in the end, he kind of also realized for himself that the neighborhood couldn't be sustained forever as it was. And I think the best impression that you could get of how the Zanzibar really was just before it was demolished is by reading those memoirs of Brussel, which are very nice, also very funny at times because there you also see a lot of anecdotes, a lot of local names, uh, nicknames of people who used to live in that neighborhood. But at the same time, you see him also reflecting on this microcosmos, on how peculiar it was, but also how indeed in the end things do come to an end at certain points in the city. Actually, kind of going from there, when you discuss the figure of this author, you just mentioned that he did two works on the neighborhood, one in the 1912 Yeah. And then also you mentioned that then, I think in 1933, he goes back again to kind of write another sort of memoir, another sort of book. However, you do mention that there's a shift in the way he discusses it. What do you think impacted his opinion on the neighborhood from the, like these two periods? Yeah, so the, the one important difference between the columns he wrote in the 1910s, which are bundled together in a book, and what he wrote in the 1930s, which is still the same column, but that was never put together in a book, is that in the 1930s, he especially bases himself on um, witnessing accounts of a police officer. And then again, you very naturally get an account of the neighborhood that is more focused on the crime, but he also doesn't necessarily go against that while discussing the witness of that police officer. So you do see him incorporating much more strongly negative tone in the 1930s than in the past. And I think that has to do with the fact that um, these nostalgic emotions ride high, so to speak, in the heat of the moment. Then again, 10 years pass, another 10 years pass, and then of course that neighborhood has been gone for a while, and then uh, Brussel apparently finds it most fitting to talk with a police officer. And then you get to a more one-sided perspective, also because you can only remember that much of the nuances and the riches, I think, over time. And I think one important finding was to also understand the mechanisms of nostalgia and the fact that nostalgia itself 
as an experience, as something that you feel, is not something that you can sustain consistently over time. It comes and goes. And then again, what is also interesting is that in the 1970s in Rotterdam, this 1910 booklet comes back into attention around the time that other neighborhoods, which I also researched, become more points on the agenda. And then you see that history kind of, again, not necessarily repeats itself, but you see the traces of past um, neighborhoods in what is happening to other neighborhoods in uh, Rotterdam. So nostalgia is something that comes and goes. And I think in the 1930s, nostalgia is really on its way back when it comes to the Zandstraatbuurt. And then it comes back again in the post-war era, I would say. So you notice nostalgia in the 30s, then in the 70s. Do people have nostalgia for the Zandstraatbuurt today? Do people remember it today in Rotterdam? Yeah, so I think nowadays sports are especially being discussed in terms of cultural regeneration. So you see that people do keep looking for these roots that have been lost somewhere in the city history. People do remember it. So I mentioned these a couple of artistic projects that have gone back to the history of the Zandstraatbuurt. So there is some kind of an urge to go back to these neighbors. And I think sports are very complex. So you can easily live in the city of Rotterdam without having much knowledge of the ports. But at the same time, the port city of Rotterdam also has to reinvent invent itself to keep itself appealing and then you see that these legacies of pleasure and of the peculiarity of ports are not only being sought after by people in their personal family stories but are also being reappropriated on a municipal level and it's quite contentious of course some people who have been living there for generations might think that the city sells itself in not a very authentic way it's pure marketing but on the other hand people also can appreciate it because they say like they don't forget about it entirely either so it's a very contentious process of trying to find a balance of how much of this cultural identity can still be reappropriated and repurposed nowadays in a way that still enhances the general experience of living in a city like Rotterdam. It's a very fine line. And that's something that I further researched in the other neighborhoods that I looked at, especially Katendrecht, which is really a typical case of a gentrified neighborhood, but at the same time also shows how culture in a poor city nowadays is being reappropriated. Actually, when you discuss nostalgia in the past in this neighborhood, you mentioned there are several strands. Which category does Zanstebird fit in more, would you say? Yes, so uh, this was a very important theoretical underpinning of of this particular case study for me. These different strands of nostalgia have been put forward most importantly by Svetlana Boim in 2001. Then afterwards, many more people have built on that further. The Zanstebird, to me, showed itself as a case of reflective nostalgia in the sense that People who used to live in the Zandstraatbuurt at the time were aware that the neighborhood would disappear and they did not necessarily protest against it. They understood that this neighborhood was about to disappear. But what they did was also sort of like making semi-cheek um, reflections on it in those last couple of years before the Zandstraatbuurt would be demolished. They would put pamphlets in the street. So they would start kind of like writing the local history of the neighborhood while it was still there, but was about to disappear, so to speak. So this is what reflective nostalgia kind of entails it doesn't necessarily say that what is the past should be restored in the future but underlines the fact that the past doesn't always come back and people come to terms with that as opposed to restorative nostalgia which really glorifies the past often in a political way to rebuild it for the present day and here restorative nostalgia can be linked to discourses of Trump in America where they really cater to people's imagination of a national past and glorify that and this is something very different than reflective nostalgia which is much more reflective on something that has uh, been lost and is also not coming back again and people understand that.
all of what you just said makes me go back to a quote or an idea that you mentioned in your work, which is that nowadays there's a certain trend by developers to market this sort of embellished story of past. But if apparently people actually didn't mind the past, why do you think the original stories of these neighborhoods were forgotten or why did it disappear? Well, that's actually a very good uh, question. And I'm not sure if I could answer that for port cities in general or cities in general, so to speak. But I think, and Rotterdam at least, has the very singular history of the bombing that happened in World War II, um, because of which the entire city center had to be rebuilt. And that really dominated the post-war era in Rotterdam. People were not necessarily thinking anymore of that cozy, gritty neighborhood that the Zandstraatbuurt used to be. They were really thinking of putting the city back on the map. At the same time, when these redevelopment initiatives started in Rotterdam, so after the World War, you could see that there were some city exhibitions that alluded to this past of the Zandstraatbuurt by making small theme parks with names like Old Rotterdam, sort of like showing and saying like, this was nice, but now we're going to rebuild Rotterdam as a modern metropolis that we are entering a new era of successful modern activity and that was really the the main narrative at that point and then after that narrative shifted towards the 80s when people um especially on a local level became more and more disillusioned with the modern city that had been rebuilt in Rotterdam because a lot of people felt it was too cold too impersonal a bit too sterile and then you see again a sort of a tendency towards localism uh, wanting to then bring that cultural identity back Vincent, as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, in your search and your research about the pleasure scapes of Rotterdam, what was the most interesting or most curious uh, thing that you learned throughout the, the research of your PhD? Well, I really liked as an outcome of my PhD, and this is kind of what I already mentioned, is that I was able to dig in the intricacies of certain urban experiences. So the Zanstraat I linked specifically to nostalgia, and I further discussed themes of safety and gentrification in my research. And these are topics that are very on the agenda in cities nowadays, and they have been for a long time already. But these things are also very intricate. It's difficult to discuss a theme like safety or nostalgia or gentrification in a way that does justice to the experiential richness that underlies it, I would say. And this is what I, I was able to get to the heart of that in the Zandstraatbuurt by looking at these ambivalences in the writings of one particular person who really um, visited that neighborhood very intensely. And I also also found these experiential intricacies, if I have to call it like this, in interviews that I did in Katendrecht, for instance, with people who used to live in that neighborhood and who also have very ambivalent perspectives on that neighborhood. And what I think is very useful is the emotional depth and intricacies that we can find in these testimonies. It's easy to think of uh, nostalgia as something very straightforward, but there's much more layers underneath it. If we talk with already one person who can translate those different contradictions and ambivalences. And that's what I really appreciate in my research. Vincent, thank you so much for joining us in the podcast. It was a pleasure to talk to you about your research. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me. It was really nice talking to you. This podcast is produced at the History Department at the Erasmus University School of History, Culture and Communication. The production team is Natalia da Silva Perez, Peter van den Hede and Isabella Restrepo Vargas. Financial support comes from the Erasmus University Lustrum 110 Project Group. This podcast is released under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, Creative Commons license. Thank, Thank you for, for listening. listening.